teaches kids lots of things. It teaches kids coping skills. It teaches kids that there's grace after they've done something wrong and gotten in trouble. It teaches kids that it's okay to have a vivid imagination. And it teaches kids that even though you are who and where you are, books in your imagination can take you anywhere. And so um, I'm going to steal a line from LeVar Burton. Uh, it's in a book. Take a look <laughs> it, because it's there for you. So it's re it's really a gateway to anything. It anything. truly is. Hey, today we're helping your kiddos fall in love with travel and reading. Hey there, with and Sean Mead Justice. You're listening. To Sean's been an educator travel. for 34 years. She started teaching this podcast elementary school classroom, and she's now focused on instructional so, teaching as the director of the Kentucky Writing Project. And the map, because just although like Bobo, I think my very favorite of her credentials is actually that she's my mom. So we're going to discuss everything there is to know about nurturing wanderlust in your children with literature and exactly how reading and literature adds so much meaning to life in general. So, hi, Mom. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm cold, but it's okay. It was seven degrees today, so gross. unusual for Kentucky, but yeah, it was cool. Super gross. Um, so, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about the Kentucky Writing Project and what you do there? So, the Kentucky Writing Project is a statewide, basically, network of teachers. We are an affiliate of the National Writing Project that was started um, at UC Berkeley, California, in the 70s. Wow. So, the Kentucky Writing Project actually began in 1982 at the University of Louisville where it stayed until last January and then transitioned when the former director retired and it transitioned to me. And we are now at um, KEDC, which is the Kentucky Educational Development um, Cooperative located in Ashland and Lexington. Um, so what we do is our mission is to make sure that teachers have the appropriate and latest literacy training so that all kids in Kentucky have access to first-rate, top-notch, latest research, educational, and literacy strategies, um, which is always evolving. People right. assume that when you learn to read and write, it never changes. That's not true. We learn something new weekly um, about how the brain learns, and so I'm, I'm excited to talk about this today because once you understand how the brain learns, then this makes a lot of sense. It's really cool, especially because, um, I don't know, to just think about how any child, no matter their background or their socioeconomic status or who their parents are, they ha all have the same opportunities to learn to read and write. I think that's super cool. So um, let's switch gears a little bit because this is a travel-related podcast. I wanted to talk to you about the impact of literature and travel on kids. Um, so my first question for you, do you think there is a distinct connection between literature and travel? Oh, absolutely. How so? Well, travel is experiential learning, basically, and literature is a gateway to that. Um, and literature also can be experiential learning. We hear people often say, just, you know, a book can take you anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's literally the truth. Um, right. A book can take you anywhere. But um, 
once we've learned about a place and then being able to travel there and experience it just cements that because I'm going to go back to um, how the brain the brain learns and the science of learning we have for lack of a better analogy a filing cabinets in our brain and as you know when you organize a filing cabinet you have to put um, you have to have a way to organize it whether it's alphabetical order or or by subject or topic or whatever and our brain does the exact same thing and so it's called uh, assimilation and accommodation and so when we experience something our brain files that away and every time we learn something new read about something hear about something hear a song our brain is very quickly trying to figure out where to file that and what file drawer does that go into and so if you think about experiences students have and often it's interesting we we think toddlers are really funny because of the way they react to things, but it's because their brains are trying to figure out how to file things away and where to put things. So where are you going to hang a, it could also be like a closet, where are you going to hang a new experience in your closet or your brain? What does that fit with within your experiences and what you already know? Now is that different with each person and like basically how their chemical brain makeup is or I mean? It can be the brain. The brain, first and foremost, there's three levels in the brain. Um, the the lowest level in the brain, it can be affected by stress or trauma, is that um, survival level of the brain. The next level of the brain is the curious understanding level of the brain, and the third level of the brain is the truly being able to apply, understand. Um, interact with things and so if you think about traveling um, all of those experiences unless it's of course under duress which would mean you're stressed for some reason but but family travel is gonna reach that highest level of the brain and highest level of understanding so as far as learning goes travel is the best sort of learning you can do now, um, that's, awesome. that's the premise behind field trips at school. It was realized very on hundreds of years ago, we, we need to get kids out places and take field trips. That's why field trips were always so special and in part of the curriculum, because those learning experiences are so much more powerful than learning about something from just a book. Mm -hmm. And so pairing those two things together um, is just like the apex of, of learning. So, just for, I think it's pretty obvious, but just in case for the listeners, experiential learning, can you, do you have like a formal definition of that that you could place? I mean, um, I think it's. I'm sure if you looked in Webster's, you would <laughs> get a different definition than I'm getting ready to give you. But right off the top of my head, experiential learning is just being an immer immersed in an experience. Awesome. And so the things, the new knowledge that you take away from an experience that you're, you're immersed in. So then, when kids are continually exposed to different cultures and people of different backgrounds and different regions, that seems like it would be super important to how a person is brought up into the world, right? Yes. So can I tell you a little personal story? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I think that is really interesting about my upbringing is I have what you would consider the quintessential poor working man Kentucky background. 
my mother is the daughter of a tobacco farmer and my father is the son of a coal miner so when people think about kentucky they think kentucky fried chicken horses coal <laughs> tobacco those are the things and Got so and kentucky fried chicken and horses People that were invested in that and had a lot to do with it made a lot of money. The other two, not so much, unless you were owners. But um, anyway, to, to get go on with the story, my parents realized, and luckily, that we needed to travel. And so they took us. I, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. We traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. And my parents realized that experiences were the way to a global education and to understanding and to success and so we didn't always have money actually my parents sent me to Europe when I was in high school um, for about three weeks but you know as a family we never we didn't have the money ever to travel there together but we always took trips uh, several each year whatever they could afford and we always had different experiences we were exposed to different people my father worked at Moorhead State University after he retired from the army and he always had foreign work studies he always made sure we got to know his foreign work studies we would have dinner with those folks they would cook for us we would cook for them they would teach us things about their culture and it, it's pretty interesting for a boy from Weeksbury, Kentucky, and a girl from Hogtown, Kentucky, to realize how important these things were. And my mother, the job that she had, she had opportunities to travel a lot as a family, and, and we did that. They always took advantage of that for us. And so I really think that has contributed greatly to my outlook on um, life in the world. I think that bleeds into each generation too because here I am making travel my job and trying to pass it on to my kids as well. Um, and for my listeners who aren't from Kentucky or familiar with Eastern Kentucky, uh, Hawktown is Eastern Kentucky. Weeksbury is Eastern, more Eastern Kentucky. So, yes. Way up in a holler it's there, y'all. It's in a holler. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's in a holler and traditions and Appalachian culture there is so rich and wonderful and it's really and I hope we'll get a chance to talk about this but Mm -hmm. it's really a shame that people from urban areas don't visit deep eastern Kentucky to learn everything that those folks have to teach because It's it's amazing there but people don't generally see it that way um because they don't know it right and um so if if you want to learn if you want to learn more about the world, plan a trip to Eastern Kentucky <laughs> once. And I think too, we could go on. We could have a whole another episode about Eastern Kentucky in the background here. But um, that there are a lot. That's a, a melting pot of cultures. I think much of the United States is, but there's a lot of different culture that makes that one culture that is Eastern Kentucky. Um, we're going to touch more later on the digital age and like literacy in the digital age. But I think. Um, a good point to make right now is that I have seen an uptick in people promoting um, more of that mountain culture, you mm-hmm. know, and, and teaching the outside world about it here. Mm-hmm. So how do you think um, literature and travel uh, impact a child's language acquisition? 
Well, um, another another little story I can tell you just firsthand that's not the technical sciencey side of it, but you know, your dad was in the Marine Corps mm-hmm. when we married, and we had um, neighbors. The wife was from Puerto Rico, and the husband was from New York. And their daughter um, spoke a little bit of English and a little bit of Spanish, and she was three. Oh. <laughs> and so just seeing her being able to be bilingual, it was kind of, it was a little confusing for her, but I think that was normal for that age because there was a you know little both going on, and sometimes she would mesh the two. But um, I think it's really important for people to understand other cultures mm-hmm. and you think it promotes empathy I do think it promotes empathy but even more important than that it just promotes being aware that there's something outside of you and your small space and I don't I mean and how tiny we are mm-hmm. and I don't mean that in a negative way right we are one very important part of a huge community a global community and so I think early on allowing children to understand that and that they're the impact that they have on the rest of the world even if it's just something they're doing in their small town of Moorhead Kentucky Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really important and I think travel is experiential you Mm -hmm. can tell somebody that all day long but until you travel somewhere and see it and make those connections and people don't make connections naturally connections have to be explicitly made and that's another thing about how the brain works Hmm. Um, because explicit connections are made when the brain is not in cognitive overload and so if you think about our society today and this goes to you know the digital age Mm -hmm. our brains are constantly in cognitive overload and so, an, an experience, you're kind of tuned out of the cognitive overload when you're having a true experience, not a digital experience. So, the learning is deeper. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. That's really wild. And the research is plentiful out there <laughs> on that. I'd love to, if there are any that any articles or anything that are in layman's terms, if I could link it in the description. Um I'll do that if you've got anything to share. Um, So let's move on to, um, I guess, helping any listeners who might have kiddos at home um, and how they want to help promote this. Because one of my goals with this podcast and my business in general is um, helping families create little global citizens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to realizing that it's more than just us out there Mm -hmm. and what we need to care about. So... For starters, how would you recommend a listener help their child by creating a literacy-rich environment at home? Um, I think it's really important that they see their parents reading mm-hmm. and that they see their parents discussing what they read. Now, it doesn't mean you have to read Moby Dick <laughs> or Anna Karenina. You can read, uh, I almost said a newspaper, but... Those don't exist anymore. Yeah, you, you, you can read a magazine. You can read, you know, anything. It's it's just important that kids see their parents reading. That's the first thing. The second thing is encouraging that reading in your children and um, 
having it be organic, like something, and this goes back to those explicit connections. And this is intuitive almost. When your child's trying to be potty trained, read the potty book. When your child's learning about their body, read the belly button book. Um, those kinds of things. Uh, when your child's getting ready to go on a field trip to the library, read a book about a library mm -hmm. with them. Um, or if you've read a book about a library, go to a library. Swap them. Yeah. Yes. Um, and make those connections explicit, though. So while you're at the library, you're going to say, do you remember our book we read? Right. What did it say? Can we find these things at the library that we read about in the book? You know, and that's kind of the way you start with toddlers. When we you talk about bookish family travel, you're talking about, like, huge family vacations, which is great. But you you can do that in your own hometown. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can make a point. We just assume that our kids understand everything that happens at the post <laughs> office because we use the post office. Right. But that's not the case. And so making a point to read books with them and then go follow those up with experiences or vice versa, have an experience and follow it up with a book and make those connections. It's a layering of learning for students. That leads me to my next question um, and one I actually ponder frequently. You know, we have libraries, we have books in our homes, hopefully. Um, we have the opportunity to read a lot more frequently than we have the opportunity to travel to larger destinations and even a, a town away. That doesn't happen as frequently as you can read. So how can you keep that top of mind for a child? Like how can you tie those occasional travels to the books that you read more frequently? Well, I think you just have to be really intentional about it and not make it an afterthought. Right. Um, I think you have to say this year we want our family to experience A, B, and C. And so I'm going to search out books that talk about A, B, and C so that they can experience that. For instance, Nuffle Bunny. <laughs> I don't know how many of you are familiar with Nuffle Bunny by Mo Willem. If you are not, you need to become Absolutely. very quickly. <laughs> Nuffle Bunny is a story about uh, Trixie who has a favorite stuffed animal named Nuffle Bunny, and Trixie can't talk yet. She speaks in gobbledygook. Flabble, gobble is what she says a lot in the book. And she goes with her dad. They live in a city, and she walks with her dad past the library, through the park, past places in her neighborhood to get to the laundromat. And so, long story short, she loses Trixie in a dryer at the laundromat. She's trying to tell her dad. He can't understand until she gets home. And, of course, mom to the rescue. She realizes <laughs> what Trixie's saying. They rush back to the laundromat, and they rescue Trixie. I mean, sorry, not Trixie, but Nuffle Bunny. Um, so, anyway, that that is such an easy, I mean, it's just a, you can talk about a park. You know, we all have parks, no, no matter how big your community is. Mm -hmm. Make that connection. Because a child is not going to think that the park in the book is the same as the park that they visit in their town. They don't make those connections. You have to make explicitly say that to them. That's so interesting. Now, some very inquisitive children, like my granddaughter Ella, <laughs> sometimes she will say, hey, did we, you know so-and-so talked about this or whatever but um you know she'll bring up experiences but that that doesn't happen frequently and it 
it needs to be ex an explicit discussion and you need to be very intentional about it as, as parents or grandparents to, to try to help make help them make those connections and think through those things. I don't know, too, that makes me wonder because Ella, she's four and she is very inquisitive and she asks a lot of questions and sometimes it can be exhausting. I think I've mentioned that once before about the questions and how we answer them. This just goes to show how important it is to really take your time, even if it's something that they've asked a million times. Mm -hmm. Let's think through this. What is the connection to what you're asking? Yeah. Um, and generally because when toddlers, she's thinking about learning and the science of learning, when toddlers keep asking a question over and over again, you're not giving them the answer. They, they don't know how to ask the question. Oh. So they'll ask the question, they'll ask the same question 20 times, <laughs> and you will answer the same way 20 times. But it's because they're not asking the real question that they need the answer to because they don't have the language or the understanding of how to do it yet, That's so how to articulate it. So, you know, then turning around and questioning them, you can usually get to the bottom of what it is that they're really trying to ask you and, and stop all that question. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I'd ever stop it, but, you know, <laughs> she's got a lot. Um, so what's the – I think library trips are really important, but do you have any other tips on um, – Curating a very diverse home library for kids? Yes. Uh, there are, like, you, you can Google d diversity in children's libraries right now and look for books of, of diversity and diverse backgrounds. There are a lot of books. I mean, of course you need all different cultures, all different ethnicities, um, in your library, you need old titles as well as new titles. Mm -hmm. Don't throw the baby out with the bath. <laughs> you know, some of those old Where the Wild Things Are, classic. great book. It's a classic. It's older than it's older than me, but um, it's a good one. No, you know, don't get rid of it. But then there are lots of brand, brand new titles as well that you need to constantly keep looking for. Now, you can Google and say um, Children's Book Awards. And it will, it will pop up from the time, there are probably eight very notable children's book awards handed out each year. Um, of course, we know the Caldecott, the Newberry, the Coretta Scott King, the Belle Pure Award. The Kentucky has the Kentucky Bluegrass Awards every year. Um, but you can just Google Kentucky, or not Kentucky, but children's book awards and it will show you all the awards that are out there. And then most of those awards, you can see the whole list since the time the, the award started until present of what the winners, who the winners are. There are thousands. There are thousands. And so that's why it's so hard to say, what books do we need to have <laughs> yeah. in our library? Well, you need, you literally need a library. You right. need a, a house full of books. That's hard one. So. Never can be too many books. No. Um, how do you think uh, story time, and I'd like to hear your perspective as my mother and uh, as a professional in the industry, but how do you think story time and reading together encourages a stronger parent-child relationship? Hmm. Well, first of all, it gives that just that quiet time without distractions other than the book, and so that's a very intimate setting, so that, that creates a bond. I also think it gives parents time to introduce subjects that they want to be in control of introducing and not let 
society or schools introduce to their students. I think it's very, I am an advocate of public education. I've been a public educator for 34 years. I think kids get introduced to a lot of things in a public education setting, not necessarily from the educators, mm -hmm. but from their peers, that parents aren't prepared for them to be introduced to. And so I think that literature is a way to be proactive about that. But also, if something comes up, there's literature out there to help you deal with that and to help you tell those stories to kids because kids are not adults and they do not need to be talked to um, as if they have a complete and full understanding of adult issues because they don't. Now that doesn't mean, I'm, I'm not saying don't to hide things from them, mm -hmm. but what I'm saying is there are ways that you need to talk with kids because their brains are at certain developmental levels that they can't understand the intricacies of certain things. So I think that that's another thing. Um, but I also think that you can help develop a bond around certain interests as mm -hmm. well. Things that you have in common with your child that you like to read about or you like to learn about. Things like that. Um, I think you and I, fast forward, you know, I'm 34 years old. You and I share a great love of reading and talk about it regularly together. And I, I know that's because of how much we talked about it when I was a child. Mm -hmm. My whole life, you know. Exactly. And with your brother, I love history. Mm -hmm. And I will read the most boring, dry history <laughs> that other people are like, oh, I can't read that. But um, but your brother loves that kind of stuff mm -hmm. too, history. And so, you know, he and I have that in common as well. And so I think it, it's a way to stay connected to your, to your children. And it's a way Every to stage. guide them. And can I say that, um, and this is just me personally, as a parent, kind of as a professional as well, but kids can't make decisions as adults if they are not exposed to things. And so by controlling the type of literature that we allow kids to read is taking away a developmental leverage point for them. So, and let me say this too, when, I, when I, I'm, I've been teaching uh, Foundations of Reading classes at Moorhead State University to future teachers, and I always start the semester by talking about um, any time a society has fallen, the first thing the people who are trying to um, destroy a religion or an ethnicity or an entire race the first thing they do is they burn books and they take away people's right to learn and they take away people's right to read they're restricting knowledge oh, that gives me cold chills they're restricting knowledge and that is the number one way to oppress people mm -hmm. and so um don't oppress your kids now you have, you know, you you have to be careful in what you let a, a elementary child read. I'm not saying hand an elementary child, you know, something that's inappropriate for them. 
but around topics and, you know, learning about other cultures and other periods in history. We can't whitewash everything mm -hmm. and have our society become a better place. And so we just have to keep that in mind and, and temper it with, you know, adult common sense. That's a good, um, I think, thing to explore in the future is how we approach banned books at home with our kids because especially kids who are in public school settings, um, there's going to be some pushback on some things, I think. Um, all right, so I think this is a good segue into the landscape of literacy education. Um, and this is going into the digital age question. Do you have any tips on teaching kids how to read and love reading in the digital age? Take their tablet away. <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Ellie got a tablet for a lot, Christmas. A lot of educators <laughs> would probably, I won't say a lot, some would disagree with me. But um, reading is about holding a book. Mm -hmm. And when you are a developed reader or a proficient or distinguished reader or a master reader I would even say then you can do it digitally and comprehend mm -hmm. but when you're beginning to read when you start thinking about reading kids have to learn how to approach an unknown word and decompose that word and put it back together. It's called word attack skills, phonics. If kids don't know how to do that, um, they might word call, but they won't have a true understanding. And so that's almost impossible to do when it's just on a screen. It's almost tactile, isn't it? It is tactile. Wow. It is tactile. Reading is just as tactile as math can be. So interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I noticed, um, I wish this was a video format for this reason alone, but when you were teaching Ella this, mm -hmm. what, what is that called, this method? The, the, the chunking of, well, it, it's phoneme segmentation. It's when they chunk a sound and they tap it on their arm as they go down and then they slide the whole word. That's so cool. Um, but it's a, it's a kinesthetic mm -hmm. way for them to, and that, and it's, it's science of reading. It's how your brain learns. Would that be considered experiential learning? No. Cause it's not immersive. No, because, because experiential learning is about comprehension. These words are about foundation and it's okay. two different things. It's about how to attack a word is a foundational thing. Um, that's just, that's just a kinesthetic right. learning style or, okay. or learning strategy. So what are some common literacy challenges for different ages, stages, and learning differences? And what is the best advice you could give to parents experiencing those challenges as well? Well, gosh, it's so hard. That was a loaded question. Uh, it, it is, and I really can't answer it because every, every, every kid is different. And so, and I'll just take you and your brother, for example. You know, you were reading in kindergarten. He <laughs> did not want to read ever um, until he, like, was out of school. And then he picked up reading. Um, and now it's insane because he, much he, he, en he, enjo he enjoys it. And he's extremely intelligent, um, just as you are. 
but the way you went about your learning was so different. And so I would say over the years, these are things that parents would ask me. How, if they can't, if they don't know their sounds, how can they put a word together? Well, it is difficult. And so they have to know their sounds, but they also have to know sight words. They do have to know sight words. They have to memorize those and they have to. Programs that reward kids for reading, the kids that get the rewards love it. The kids that struggle, it even makes them struggle worse. And so, and the research is clear on that. So, um, AR, the Book It program that Pizza Hut used to do, all great things for kids who bought into it. Mm -hmm. All very negative things for kids who were forced to do it and weren't successful with it. And so, I'm saying that to say this. Don't force your kid to read unless they want to. But a way you can get them to read is take them somewhere. Right. Take them somewhere and have them want to learn more about it. So when we go on our next vacation, um, and I don't just mean me, myself, but like my listener, when they take their child on their next vacation, say it's to Myrtle Beach or to Disney World or to Ohio, the Hocking Hills, whatever, wherever they go, how can they support their child and the teacher teaching them in the classroom um, with what they're experiencing on that trip? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, as a teacher, um, I wholeheartedly, if a parent came to me and said, sorry, our family's going to Florida next week, I was like, yeehaw, go. <laughs> and it wasn't because, you know, the, it was going to be one less child in my class. It was because I knew that what they would get on a trip to a different state, even if it was to the same beach they went to every time, was so much more educational than anything they would be getting in the four walls of our school. And we worked hard, and we were a good school. Mm -hmm. But I still know that the, the experiential, you know, education is, is so much better. And so, but what I would tell parents is to encourage your kids, if they're, if they're missing school, to, I wouldn't say have them do a report or whatever, <laughs> But have them be ready to talk about some of the things that they learned while they were gone. Or have a plan before you go. What do we want to learn about while we're there? Or ask the teacher, is there something that you could recommend that we might want to see or do or while like we're what, there? What are they going to be missing that we could tie it to? Because the, this is the thing. <clears throat> For every child that goes on a family vacation, there are five kids sitting in that, that room that have never been on a family vacation. It's heartbreaking. And so, and, and may never, may never go on a family vacation. At least five. And so, having kids that have been on a family vacation bring a seashell back for all their classmates. Aww. And then the teacher can read a story that goes along with something, you know. Or having, you know, they don't have to bring something, but being able to share somehow so that everybody in the class feels like they're part of this experience. Well, that's global. I think that's a, a, a great uh, active definition of global citizenship yeah I think so too and you know the way technology is now if if you're at a conference in Columbus with your 
dad for a week for whatever reason <laughs> your mom decided to go or your your mom was at a conference and your dad decided to go and so the whole family went um you can zoom from the columbus museum of art that's so cool. with your class i mean technology makes things when i said you know put away the tablet um use there are ways that we can use it i mean you can zoom literally you could zoom from from anywhere back into your class and, and work that out with the teacher. Hey, we're gonna be here, here, and here on these days and times. Would you want us to Zoom? Now, some teachers might say, no, it won't work out with our schedule, whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you offered. You can't, you know, change the world. I, as a teacher, when someone ever offered some sort of outside, of course, <laughs> when I was in the classroom, well, we didn't even have email when I started teaching. That's how long I've been teaching. Email wasn't a thing. Um, neither was Google. So anyway, um, but kids would bring books back from places they, you know, had gone. And I would read a book or show the kids the pictures or whatever. So there are ways to um, get the whole class invested in, in travel and where your family's been. That, I think... There's a huge tie in storytelling and um, travel, and like there are stories in every place you go. How do you think storytelling has impacted education as a whole? Storytelling? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, to be an effective teacher, you have to be a good storyteller because stories are what people remember. Mm -hmm. People don't remember facts, they remember stories. And so I think that directly impacts the classroom. But I also think allowing kids to be storytellers makes them feel valued. And so it, it goes back to that, I hear you and I see you and I know who you are. And so I think that's important. So it starts there. But I think when kids learn that their stories are important, then they begin to listen for other people's stories from other cultures, other places. Um, listen, I did a project last year at the local high school and it was called Writing for Change and it was part of the National Writing Project curriculum. And I asked, these were freshmen, and I asked them uh, to create a, a self map. And so there were like seven areas, school, organizations, things you loved, seven areas that I gave them that specifically would let people know who they were as a person. And it was so interesting because out of 40 kids, 30 of them I probably couldn't have differentiated from because they were all from mostly this community, same upbringing, same background, same. Then there were 10 that were drastically different hmm. because they'd been raised somewhere else. So it was so interesting to see those kids, eat, and they'd been going to school with these other students for, I mean, a few years anyway, um, that they all of a sudden realized that they weren't all exactly the same. Now, I didn't realize that until I was about 40 years old, that, every, <laughs> that not everybody I graduated from high school with had the same background. I mean, I knew the socioeconomic background was different, yeah. but belief-wise right. and, and what's important to me and my family and that kind of thing. And so um, it was just really interesting when they sat down and started talking to each other about it 
And some of them were very reluctant to be different than anyone else in that room. And so, and these are, we're talking about 14 year olds. And so that's something parents should know mm -hmm. and be aware of. Mm -hmm. And I know it's an age and adolescence, that's kind of where they are, but um, your kid needs to know what makes them unique. Right. And they need to understand their own story. Who are they? Because some of these kids couldn't really tell me who they were. They didn't know. I think it's so interesting how to tie all of this. Like, so for the listeners, like I said, this is my mother. She, she and I have talked about reading a million times over. But to hear all this, every time we talk about this or anything else, it just brings new, like another layer of of understanding to me because like the connection between the coming of age um maturation and just knowing who you are with literature with experiencing the world with understanding other people it's it's just all the interconnectivity is just very interesting to me um so that's pretty much all i have for the segments on the show but every episode i want to ask my guests and you are my first guest so <laughs> lucky you um do you have three books that you'd recommend to the audience and why would you recommend them so this is the question when i when i previewed the questions this is the question that made me the most nervous <laughs> because it is so hard to pick three books right i mean i i've I have been teaching children's literature to college. I've been, first of all, I, I use children's literature, but I've been teaching the children's literature course at Moorhead State University. And so I do a survey of all genres of children's literature. And, um, and so to narrow that down to three <laughs> books is really difficult. So I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to say this, don't leave out wordless picture books, and my favorite wordless picture book is Fly by Mark Teague, and it would be great to pair with travel because it's about this little bird who really doesn't want to leave the nest, and so his mom kicks him out, <laughs> and then when he gets out of the nest, he won't go back in. And mom is trying to tell him how dangerous the world is. <laughs> and he has no experiences, so he doesn't understand it. So he sees himself, like, riding in a hot air balloon to Florida. And, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's the, it's the funniest, cutest book. But also, wordless picture books give, you know, you can read. Pictures are a text as well. And so um, I share this, I share that book with college students, and I say, let's read this together. And it is so interesting to hear the different versions that they come up with, but because there are no words. But um, don't leave don't leave wordless picture books out, and I would recommend Fly um, from Mark Teague and Chalk as well. I'm not gonna tell you what Chalk's about, but <laughs> you'll be sad if you don't read it. Um, and then I will also say my favorite children's book author is Kevin Hinky, and he um, Lily's Purple Plastic Purse and um, Waiting so he just has a lot of great 
books that that are out there. And so, you know, um, make sure and and look at his stuff. So I I think he's probably one of my favorite authors. I'm also gonna say this, and I I don't I want to say this without offending anybody, <laughs> but. If you're like us and you're middle class white folks, uh, don't always read books about little white children. Have your kids understand and learn and sympathize with and empathize with characters that are polar opposites of who they are because that will go a long way um, in helping them understand the world. Read about kids with special needs. Read about kids who come from families that don't look at all like your family. Read about kids who are troubled. Read about kids who aren't troubled. Read about Malala Yousafzai, who is the youngest Nobel Prize winner ever, and she is a Muslim. Read about, read about people that aren't like you. Um, because it will make your it will make your child a better human and and i think that's all we're trying to do is make these tiny little humans better mm -hmm. and better than we are and so and the only other book that i would recommend just as title wise like my one of my all-time favorites was my favorite as a child and I've already mentioned it once, and it's Where the Wild Things Are. Mm -hmm. And Where the Wild Things Are is such a beautiful book. There's so much there, and you have to read it literally 400 times before you see it all. And I probably read it 500, and I just <laughs> love it. I love it. You're still seeing things, aren't you? I still see things in it. And, um, you know, it's about this little boy who gets in trouble, so he's sent to his room without any supper because he's roaring at his mom. He's hangry. I don't <laughs> think they had the word hangry back then when the book was written. But um, it's, the author is Maurice Sendak. And, you know, he, so he goes in his room and he goes to where the, uh, to, it's all about imagination and where can your imagination take you. And he goes to the island of the wild things and becomes the king of the wild things until he falls asleep. And then he wakes up because somebody's brought his dinner to his bedroom and he can smell it. Um, great book. But it teaches kids lots of things. It teaches kids coping skills. It teaches kids that there's grace after they've done something wrong and gotten in trouble. It teaches kids that it's okay to have a vivid imagination. And it teaches kids that even though you are who and where you are, books in your imagination can take you anywhere. And so I'm going to steal a line from LeVar Burton. Uh, it's in a book. Take a look <laughs> it, because it's there for you. So it's real. It's really a gateway to anything. It anything. truly is, and there's so much you can do if you want to build a family vacation around an author. I and I also have to mention Roald Dahl. Mm -hmm. uh, anything he wrote was just fabulous, um, and Kate DiCamillo. It's hard just for me to just say. <laughs> She's still going to be going after we stop recording. So. But anyway, you truly, you truly could do years of family vacations around literature. And um, it just depends on what your, what your tastes are. So, yeah. Well, thank you again. I wanted to ask where can listeners find you and your work online? 
So we're, we're in a bit of a transition period. Of course, National Writing Project is in at nwp.org. We have recently transitioned to KEDC, like I mentioned before. So our web page, our landing site there is under construction, but when that gets up and running, it will be at kebc.org. We also, you can find us at Kentucky Writing Project on X and Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> All the um, <laughs> he would record himself when he got tired at family celebrations or gatherings, when he got tired of talking, he would put in his cassette tape and push play for all of us to listen to things that um, he had recorded himself saying. So, um, but seeing him and learning, storytelling is a fading art. And so storytelling and writing are so, so closely related, but doing multi-generational storytelling and writing of those stories is something we really support and, and want to try to get out there with families. Okay, so again, thank you so much. I really appreciate thank this you. because I'm so excited for people to hear this. I think it's going to bring so much to um, parents who are listening, and um, the podcast is still new. So probably there's – I know there are less than six listeners because I don't get analytics until I have at least six. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but hopefully in the future people will hear this and be really inspired. Be sure to join us next week as we go through the Disney parks on a literary adventure. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm so grateful for anyone who takes the time out of their day to listen to my little podcast. Uh, join me every Tuesday where I'll be releasing a new episode. Until then, happy reading and happy adventuring.